Welcome to the SSPX Podcast. During this week, we are revisiting five lectures given by Father Daniel Thiemann, the rector of Holy Cross Seminary in Australia, about the history of the Society of St. Pius X. These were given on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the SSPX in November 2020. Today's lecture is the second in the series, titled The Place of the Mass in Our Battle, and covers the period of 1971 to 1976. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. So, last time that I visited Singleton, I remarked that this was the 50th anniversary of the founding of the Society of St. Pius X, and it might be good for us to go through some of the chief events in the course of the last 50 years and try to draw some lessons for our own spiritual lives. And last time I spoke about the founding of the society, and in the context of that, I spoke about these two qualities of our soul, these two virtues that we need to have, which are, on the one hand, a generosity, which is an active virtue, if you will, which prompts us to take initiative, to do things for God, but also this virtue of docility to the providence of God where we wait and try to discern the will of God through the circumstances of life. And that, that, of course, is more passive, where we let God take the initiative and we try to read his will in those circumstances. And I remarked that although these two things are both necessary, naturally speaking, they are very difficult to have together. Because by temperament, we tend to be either more active and generous or more passive and docile. And yet it's necessary to be both. And so only by the grace of God can those two things be harmonized in our soul. And we have to, in fact, make some effort to mortify, to bring under control our natural temperament, whichever way it may tend, in order that the grace of God may harmonize in our soul these two naturally opposed Qualities. Now today, I would like to move forward just a little bit in the history, and that brings us to June of 1971. And in that month, the Archbishop announced to his priests, to his seminarians, that the Society of St. Pius X would not offer Mass according to the new rite. The society would not offer the new mass. Not that the society had done so up until that time. It had not. But nevertheless, this is when the archbishop declared his intention that it would never happen in the chapels, the churches of the society. And he gave his reasons, which were theological. He said, well, you know... The Novus Ordo Mass, and it was not difficult to point this out, it was common knowledge, the Novus Ordo Mass was drawn up with the, the assistance of Protestants in order to, to bring about a rite of Mass that would be acceptable to Protestants, a rite of Mass that in fact would be so ambiguous which would obscure the truths of our faith so completely that even a non-Catholic could worship using this rite of Mass. And the Archbishop pointed out specifically three doctrines, although there could have been more. He pointed out three that were undermined by this new rite of Mass. The first is the distinction between the ordained priesthood the, the priesthood of the one who celebrates Mass, and what we might call, 
the priesthood of the people, which is the priesthood that we have just by our baptismal character. And there is something to that. There is, because that baptismal character gives all Christians the the possibility to receive grace through the sacraments. And without that character, in fact, you cannot receive grace through the sacraments. So it is a power, but it is a power to receive, if you will. It's a passive power, as opposed to the power of the ordained priest, which is involved with the character of holy orders, which is an active power. It's the power to give grace through the Mass and through the sacraments. And this distinction is very clear in the Church's theology, but the new rite of Mass has obscured it because, of course, Protestants, while they might accept a very general and rather vague priesthood of all Christians, do not accept at all a priesthood which is specific to an ordained minister. And so that truth had to be obscured. Likewise, the very nature of the Mass as a sacrifice, as a true sacrifice, that had to be obscured as well, not acceptable to non-Catholics. And finally, the real presence of our Lord at Mass in the Blessed Sacrament, that had to be obscured as well. The, the new Mass will speak of a spiritual presence, of a presence of, of, of God through his, his Word, through the reading of Scripture. The new Mass will speak about a general presence of our Lord being present wherever two or three are gathered together in His name. Okay, fine, there is that spiritual presence, that's true, but that's obviously not the presence that's relevant at Mass. That's not the special presence which is unique to the Mass. And no one would normally think of speaking of that kind of presence when our Lord is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, substantially in the host. But the new Mass does emphasize, rather, this spiritual presence to the sacramental one. And these three, these three problems are all linked together, of course, because if the Mass is not a sacrifice, then there is no need for a victim to be truly present if there's no sacrifice. And there doesn't have to be any distinction between the ordained priest and the general priest, the priesthood of the faithful, if you will, because there's no one necessary to really offer a sacrifice. Whereas to offer sacrifice is the specific function of a priest who is a priest in the full sense of the term. And so the Archbishop pointed out that this rite of Mass, this new rite of Mass, it does not express the truths of the faith even about the Mass itself. Other criticisms could be made, the way it obscures the necessity of the reality of sin, doing penance for sin, the intercession of the saints, etc., etc. A lot of other specifically Catholic truths are not so prominent in the new rite of Mass. But at least one would expect that a rite of Mass would clearly express the truths about the Mass itself. And it doesn't do that. And since we must worship God, through our theological virtues. The only way we can worship God is through our faith, our hope, and our charity. Then we should use a rite of Mass that is precisely an expression of our faith and which does not serve to undermine it and obscure it. Now, 
this time, this, ni- this year of 1971, the, the French bishops are watching with growing alarm the, the seminary of Icon, which is not going away, which is growing, in fact. And Archbishop Lefebvre's cousin, who's a cardinal, Cardinal Lefebvre, he warned him and said, the French bishops are never going to forgive you for what you did at the council. Because the archbishop, of course, was one of the leaders, not the only one, but certainly one of the leaders of those who tried to oppose this modernist tendencies, and very strong modernist tendencies, in the Second Vatican Council. And he was uh, widely remembered for that. Now, in 1972, there begins a campaign in France of misinformation about Econ in order to solidify the opposition of the bishops against Econ, a campaign of misinformation begins. And it's said that the Archbishop, Archbishop Lefebvre, is accepting seminarians to his seminary without the permission of their local bishops, which was not true. It was hinted that Econ had not been founded according to proper uh, procedure and according to the regulations of the church, which was also not true. So the Archbishop, knowing that these things are circulating, He asks to come to attend the meeting of the French Episcopal Conference in Lourdes in 1972. He says, let me come, let me clear up any misunderstandings about what we are doing and how we operate. Now, of course, there were obviously a party of French bishops who did not want that misunderstanding clarified. They didn't want that at all. And so the archbishop was refused in his request to come and speak at this conference. He was told it wasn't necessary that the topic of a cone would not even be discussed, which, of course, was not true. A cone was discussed, and the the meeting of the French bishops passed resolutions against ordaining seminarians from seminaries that had not been approved by the Episcopal Conference. doesn't matter the seminary had been approved by the church. It hadn't been approved by the French Episcopal Conference, and there's a resolution against ordaining seminarians from seminaries like that. And of course, there is one seminary that is in mind behind that resolution. In 1973, the French bishops begin putting their pressure on Rome itself to close this seminary. And in 1974, Rome gives in to some extent to that pressure and sends two priests to visit Econ and to come back and bring back a report on what is going on there. These two visitors come, they interview the the professors, they interview the seminarians, and the seminarians and professors are quite shocked at the opinions that the visitors themselves Express. They are there to try to get a sense of the orthodoxy of Econ, and they themselves are telling the seminarians, well, you know, truth changes with time. And even things like the resurrection of our Lord will not always be understood in the same way. May not be necessary to always understand it in historical sense. So the seminarians are hearing this from the the visitors. And so they are quite scandalized. They go and they tell this to the archbishop. And so the archbishop issues a statement. It's very famous, a statement. 
in which he says that we adhere with our whole heart to eternal Rome. We are Catholics. We adhere to eternal Rome. But we do refuse the neo-modernist tendencies which are running rampant in Rome and in the church at this present time. 1975, things become much uglier. The, the campaign of misinformation among the French bishops, that's over. And now it's a question of spreading that to the media. And so there is a massive media campaign against Econ, and there are acts of violence and vandalism against Econ. There's graffiti sprayed on the buildings. There are shots fired through the windows at night. It is really, really ugly in 1975. In 1976, Paul VI will say that the archbishop is being disobedient to the new liturgy, which is a rather strange way of expressing himself in any case, to be disobedient to the new liturgy. But that is the, uh, the observation that he makes, his criticism that he makes. Cardinal Benelli, in the name of the Pope, tells the archbishop, that all of this controversy, all of this tension will be solved if the archbishop would celebrate the new mass just once. It would all be fine. Everything would be smoothed out if the archbishop would celebrate the new mass just once. Now, what I would like to to draw from from these, these events is an answer to a question that is often asked, and even when it's not explicitly asked, it is often lingering a bit in the minds of people. And that question is, is the society's work, is the society's struggle or combat about the man's? And it's easy to understand why people ask that, because certainly at the beginning, at the beginning, that was the emphasis. After all, the archbishop is founding a seminary to form priests who are going to say the traditional mass. So is that what the society is about? But the short answer, at least, is no. No, it's not. Because the Catholic life is about more than just the mass. The Catholic life is about the faith, first of all, the doctrines of the church revealed by God, passed on to men through the church. It's about the moral teaching of the church, the moral law of God, again, based on the revelation of God, on the doctrines of God. It's about a healthy spirituality, not what passes for spirituality nowadays, which is just a very vague sentimentality, but a real spirituality based upon the truth. What are we called to be? And what does God place in our soul? The grace of God. What are the laws by which the grace of God develops and grows and expands in our soul? What is it that we are meant to be? We are meant to be imitators of Christ. What virtues are we meant to practice? This is spirituality, and that's based upon the faith. And of course, of course, yes, the Catholic liturgy, again, based upon that faith and which produces, which nourishes a Catholic spirituality. So it's all of these things. That's the Catholic life, and we don't have the right to divide 
the Catholic life. We don't have the right to say, I'm only going to focus on one aspect. I'm only going to defend one element of the Catholic life. The only way that the society could be exclusively about the Mass, or for that matter, the only reason any Catholic could be focusing exclusively on the Mass is if that was the only thing under attack. Everything else was in place, everything else was fine, we just had a problem with the Mass and it needed to be defended. Well, then, yes, we could focus our efforts there. But that's not the reality. Everything is being undermined. Everything is crumbling, I'm afraid, in these days. People, and it's, it's not rare at all, it's not rare at all to find Catholics who don't believe in the real presence anymore. It's not rare at all to find Catholics who don't really believe that the scriptures were inspired. Yes, inspired in a certain poetic way, the way we talk about a poet being inspired when he writes. Certainly the scriptures were written by men of great religious conviction who were sharing their experience of God. That's not what we mean by the inspiration of scripture. There are a few people today who believe in sin, really, really. Sin is something which is perceived as sort of a a psychological issue that, you know, you've done some things, you've got some baggage, and you've got to work that out. You've got to find internal peace. Yeah, well, sin is about establishing establishing peace between us and God. That is what sin, and the solution to sin at least, is about. Nobody believes in hell anymore. Uh, Sorry, we do believe in hell because we're sure that Hitler is there. That's the only reason anyone believes in hell anymore. Um, The fact that our Lord speaks about it is apparently not as good of an argument as the fact that Hitler's got to be in hell. So there has to be a hell at least for him. But practically speaking, no one really believes in sin or hell anymore. At least it's, it's, it's very much... Uh, on the back burner in the minds of even Catholics. So it's not just about the Mass. It's about the Catholic life, or the whole Catholic life. Nevertheless, it is true that the Mass has a centrality in the Catholic life, a centralness, which can't be denied. The Mass, the traditional Mass, what the Mass is meant to be, embodies and expresses the faith It teaches us Catholic morality. It nourishes Catholic spirituality. It is the vehicle by which our souls absorb a Catholic vision. It is the means by which the Catholic life expands in our soul. That's true. That is true. And the new Mass has brought about the effects we would have expected. It's it's what happened, for that matter, and this has been pointed out many times, with the Protestant revolt in England. The way that England became a Protestant country was not by a systematic re-catechizing of the faithful, not by grand statements denying Catholic doctrines, Not how it was done at all. They simply revised the Mass so that it was a Protestant Mass, a Protestant service. And after you have prayed like a Protestant for one generation, England wakes up to find itself a Protestant country. If you pray like a Protestant after one generation, you will believe like a Protestant. And that is what, in fact, or something similar to that, is what has happened in the church today. So this centrality of the Mass is recognized by everyone, not just by the Archbishop, who had to take the stand he took, but by the modernists, 
The modernists who say, say the new mass just once and everything will be fine. Because if the archbishop had offered the new mass just once, he would have accepted the principle of the revolution in the church. And the rest are just details. Details of personal preference. And modernists don't mind granting a certain liberty to follow your particular spiritualities and your tastes as long as you accept the principle of the revolution in the church. The modernists do not mind giving us the keys to the museum. The church, you know, has a lot of old and beautiful things. And you, you traditionalists, you can be the caretakers of the museum. So when people have an interest in seeing old and beautiful things, they come to you, you unlock the museum, you show it to them, and when they leave, you close it up tight so that it doesn't have any influence in the world. They're happy to give us the keys to the museum as long as, as long as we accept the principle that Christ cannot be king anymore. That it is going to be man now and worldly values that are central to human life. No doubt, the Mass is beautiful. No doubt. There's reasons for loving it which are purely historical and aesthetic. That's true, but that's not good enough. We love it because it is the expression and the vehicle of the Catholic faith and the Catholic vision of life. It is not good enough to love it for its beauty. Just like it is not good enough to love Jesus Christ because he was a good man who said beautiful and sublime things. That's not good enough. So finally, dear faithful, just a little word on what should be our practical attitude towards people who, who do not yet see the whole picture. Who do not yet see the whole picture. First of all, let us thank God for the goodwill that they have and the truth that they do see. Let us never despise a work of God. Let us never despise what the grace of God has brought about in the, in the soul of another, the good that God has caused. Let us never despise that. Let us thank God and, and, and respect the good that has been wrought in their soul. And remember also that each of us came to tradition in stages. For many of us, it began with noticing, or perhaps our parents noticing, the problems in the liturgy. For others, it came through being scandalized by by the new catechism that we are being asked to, to learn our faith from, or by some outrageous sermon that was being given by a priest. For some, and I would say especially more and more nowadays, people are awakening to the crisis in the church by the fact that even morality is not being consistently taught by Catholic priests and Catholic bishops, even things that would have been obviously upheld just a decade or two decades ago are now apparently on the table for discussion in the minds of Catholic bishops. But whatever the path may have been, we all came to tradition in stages. Let us not be surprised if everyone else comes to it in the same way. But let us at the same time, at the same time, let us be clear 
the Catholic life cannot be divided. And we have to embrace the whole thing. And we have to pray for everyone and help everyone to embrace the whole thing and to see that it is all under threat today. So let us be sure that we keep our clarity with our charity. If we want our charity to be genuine, there must be clarity in our charity. And we must not deceive ourselves or deceive these others that part of the picture is enough. And when we ourselves have to make practical decisions, uh, a very practical decision, for example, if I'm a young person and I'm thinking about founding a family with someone, who am I going to have to date and that sort of thing? Well, let us keep these things in mind. That the Catholic life cannot be divided. If we are a parent and we're teaching our children, giving them some advice about life and their paths in life, again, we have to teach them the Catholic life cannot be divided. So let us pray for all those who do not yet see the whole picture, who see only part of it or perhaps see none of it at all. Let us pray for them and for us who hope that we do see the whole picture. Let us make sure that we are not only guarding these treasures of our faith, but we are profiting by them. What a waste that would be if we fight so long and make so many sacrifices to keep access to the life-giving tradition of the church, and yet we don't let it give us life. What a shame that would be. So let us renew our intention today to, to not only be grateful to God for the gifts that he has given us, but to accept, to, to use them, and to use them to their full potential, to allow the life of God to expand in our souls for our sake and for the sake of others for whom we will be a source and a channel of grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for listening to and watching the SSPX Podcast. More is available at sspxpodcast.com. Please don't forget to share this episode and the podcast itself with someone who you think might enjoy it. Until next time, thank you for listening, and God bless you.